Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2008. And we are going on a trip to do a podcast in Bruges. In Bruges? Why would anybody do a podcast in Bruges? Can we just reserve judgment on Bruges until we've seen the fucking place? <laughs> the movie in Bruges. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we look at films that are remembered as classics, but ask the question, are they that good, or are they just remembered that way? I'm very excited to talk about today's film, In Bruges, because there's been a lot of talk about Martin McDonough, especially post-Oscars. Um, is Banshee's best film? Uh, where does In Bruges fall? Because In Bruges was not a hit when it came out. But it's a movie that I think, especially in the conversation we're going to be having today, we really find a lot in. This is a movie that I have kind of held off rewatching in so long because I find it to be so beautiful, so powerful, so wonderful that I don't want it to lose that impact. So getting to watch it again for this podcast has been such a joy. I love this movie kind of beyond reason. I almost am terrified of how much I love this movie and how much power it has over me. And how hard it was to watch this time, because it has been a long time. And rewatching, I was like, oh, wow. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I forgot about all of this. You know, and I think, you know, as we talk about this film, what you're going to hear is something maybe a little bit different than what Amy and I often do, which is our impression of it is constantly changing as we find different things that I think underline a little bit of a thesis that we had that becomes bigger and bigger. You know, this movie is about hitmen, but it really is about so much more. It's about compassion and understanding and nuance. And to make that point, I feel like we should say up at the top, we're going to be playing some clips of this movie that say some things that don't sound like they have a lot of compassion and nuance and can be kind of hard to hear. That is a lot of what this movie is made of. And you know, with that being said, Amy, I think without any fucking delay, we should fucking do the podcast. Fucking and spool it. 
The year is 2008, and we need to talk about the freak of creativity that is Martin McDonough. It starts with humble beginnings. McDonough was born in London to Irish immigrant parents. His dad was a construction worker. His mother was a cleaner. At 16, McDonough dropped out of school just like his older brother John had before and began to think up terrible stories while working shit jobs and living off of welfare. Finally, in 1994, he wrote his ideas down, play after play after play after play, seven plays total in the course of nine months, all super violent and all so good that pretty much straight away, four of them were all staged in London in the same theater season. That means you could go see Martin McDonough four nights a week and see four different shows, right? The last hit playwright that that happened to William Shakespeare. <laughs> it's insane. And when that happened, Martin McDonough was only 27 years old. And, you know, because he grew up pretty humble, he had only ever just started eating in nice restaurants for the first time. He was like, what's tzatziki? He was so unused to this, like, hello, you are the new fancy playwright hit of London, that at his very first award show, where he won Most Promising Playwright, he got really, really drunk, got so rowdy that Sean Connery told him to be a little quieter. He told Sean Connery to fuck off. That became headlines across London. It made him extra super duper famous. And then everybody was like, well, Martin, you wrote all these plays. Where are the rest of them? And he was like, I don't know if I have other plays in me. You know, I really don't. I feel like I had this crazy nine-month roof. And then I'm nervous. I don't know what comes next. So he wrote and directed his first short film. It was called Six Shooter. His very first short film won the Academy Award for short film. So then he wrote and directed his first feature film. And that is what we're talking about today in Bruges. And in Bruges is about two hitmen, Ray and Ken, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who have screwed up so badly that their boss, Harry, that's Ray Fiennes, has sent them to hide out in Bruges. You don't even know they're here hiding out. What are you talking about? You don't even know we're not here on the job. What? On a job? Yeah. Here in Bruges? Yeah. Here in Bruges? On a job? Yeah. Why? What did he actually say? He didn't actually say anything. Why do you think it might I be? don't think anything. But it's a bit fucking over-elaborate, isn't it? Go take him to hideout. Go take him to hideout. Where? Go take him to hideout in fucking Bruges. Now, Ray, as you heard, thinks Bruges is trash. Ken, who's older, kind of likes it. Ray and Ken meet a few people. Chloe, played by Clements Posey, who is a drug dealer on Ray's Wavelength. And Jimmy, played by Jordan Prentice, a dwarf actor who is on a whole other ketamine-induced wavelength of his own, and then Harry calls Ken and tells him that he has to murder Ray. We learn that Ray has just shot a priest, which is fine, but accidentally he also shot a little kid. And that, Harry says, is unforgivable. In Bruges opened in theaters on February 8th, 2008. And it was not a McDonough-sized artistic hit. It actually never ranked higher on the box office chart than number 18. And when it left American theaters, it really had only made like $7.8 million dollars. It made a little bit more money than that in England, and it made about a million dollars in Belgium, if you're curious how it went over there in actual Bruges. Uh, I loved this movie when it first came out, and I remember that loving this movie felt like screaming into the wind. Have you seen this movie? What are you talking about? Uh, but over the last 15 years, in Bruges has kind of seemed to be on this trajectory from small film that people who love it feel like they have to defend to an accepted, genuine, agreed-upon masterpiece. 
But that kind of bounce in public approval is nothing compared to what was on the charts that weekend of February 8th, 2008. Because this is a song that also made a modest debut, just 91 in its very first week on the Billboard charts in November of 2007. But by New Year's Eve, it hit number one, and it stayed number one for over 10 weeks. It stayed in the top 100 for over 39 weeks until June of 2008. Not only did this song ascend to become the top song of all of 2008, it was the top-selling digitally downloaded song of all time until the Black Eyed Peas, and I got a feeling. It is Flo Rida and Get Low. That is actually my wedding song. It is actually. You're not kidding, it right? It is. I am not kidding. It is <laughs> It is um, not the one that I walked down the aisle to, but the one that we walked into uh, the reception to. And uh, we had everybody in our family do a big choreographed dance because that was big at the time, although I don't regret anything. Um, I think I would have done it better now. I feel like I've gotten better. I've loosened up in my ability to dance in front of people. Are you a, are you a good dancer in front of people? Can you just let it fly? I think I'm okay. I was a little bit tall for my age in like elementary and middle school. And so I had that kind of self-consciousness at school dances where I felt like I was a foot taller than everybody else and felt so obvious and gawky. Yeah, yeah. But then I kind of stopped growing and everybody more or less caught up to me and now I'm fine. <laughs> I, like you, loved Imbruge. And I've been screaming into the wind about it for probably as long as you have. My friends loved it. We all went to go see it. We talked about it. It felt like a big movie, but you still are finding people that don't know about it. And sadly, in my opinion, what people knew about when they heard the name Martin McDonough was, you know, Three Billboards, right? The, the, the Three Billboards movie that won a bunch of Academy Awards. And I was like, no, no, no. If you like that, you're going to love In Bruges. You got to go back and watch In Bruges. And then this year when I saw uh, Banshees of Inisherin, and I was like, oh, this is great. I love it. But I hadn't seen In Bruges in a while. Um, and I went back and watched it and it just blew me away how perfect it really is. And there's this one little moment in... Martin McDonough's career where I felt like I was so excited to see Seven Psychopaths, which is like his follow-up film. I felt the same way. I felt just like pins and needles. I couldn't believe this guy was making another movie. And I was so pumped. And I just felt a little bit like, okay, that was fine. It was fine. I don't, it doesn't really stick with me. I can't even lie and say, well, I didn't like it. It wasn't as good. It just was fine. I don't know what about it didn't click the same way because I do remember the other films. And I've even seen Martin McDonough do these stage shows now, or they're not stage shows. They are his plays and the plays are perfect. And watching this, it really does feel closer to a play. And I feel like Banshees feels closer to a play than I would say Seven Psychopaths and Three Billboards. And I like this version of Martin McDonough the best. The the dialogue-driven, the... I don't want to say Aaron Sorkin because that means that like Aaron Sorkin holds uh, control over just the mastery of dialogue. I, I think it's incredibly unique. It, it feels it's its own version of Sorkin or Mamet or Shakespeare, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it just has a self-assuredness in 
its dialogue and its violence in what it's saying that doesn't feel like it's it's pulling any punches. And I love that. It doesn't feel like it's trying to appease anyone or or be a movie for anyone more than the writer and director. That's how I kind of feel about Banshees and this. Yeah, this is a prickly, unapologetically itself movie. You know, I mean, this is a movie that fundamentally is about like people doing and saying horrible things. Can you still care about them? Can you think that they deserve forgiveness? Do you think they should be sent to hell? You know, there's something very challenging in this movie, very daring in kind of what it is. You know, you have a couple things going on. You have these two hitmen. They're in Bruges. They are hitmen, you know? And I, I want to just even take a second to dwell on the hitmanness nature of this because we watch a lot of hitman movies. We were talking about this last week with John Wick. Here's a, a movie about a guy who, you know, his puppy is killed and kills 80 people as a result of it. And there's something where I feel like you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, you deserve to kill 80 people that killed your puppy. And we are kind of as audiences are sort of acclimated to hitmen as a reasonable career, you know, and it's really strange. It's really, really strange. And so watching this movie, you know, again, I found myself, you know, because a, a lot has happened in culture between 2008 and 2023. This movie says a lot of things in 2008 that I don't even think Martin McDonough might say in 2023. Right. There's a lot of slurs, a ton of slurs in this movie. Slurs used, I think, as like a challenge, you know? And it, it really caught me how in 2008, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can get behind Colin Farrell saying a lot of the casual, horrible, bigoted shit he's saying. He killed a kid. Okay, okay, okay. And like the fact that morally I was more upset about what he was saying than the fact that he killed a kid made me feel completely inside out. You know, that's interesting because watching it, I felt the same way. I'm like, I wonder how we can talk about this. Do we have to address how some of these terms that he uses are just out of fashion? But then I also feel like it's so true to this character, right? It, I think it's commenting on who this character is. Like you can't truthfully write this character without these attitudes present. Like I think if you were to write this today, the character would still speak like this. He probably would. This character would be like, you can't cancel me. I don't care. I don't have a Twitter. I mean, maybe we should even just like play some samplings to set the tone. Why don't you tell me some Belgian jokes while you're at it? I don't know any Belgian jokes. And if I did, I think I'd have the good sense not to. Hang on. Is Belgium where there are all those child abuse murders lately? And I do know a Belgian joke. What's Belgium famous for? Chocolates and child abuse. And they only invented the chocolates to get to the kids. What? One of the girls they murdered was a friend of mine. I love this clip, and it's an interesting one because I think it really isolates an important part of this film, which is he tells that joke, he's not cognizant that it could hurt someone, and then when it's revealed that it actually does hurt her, you see him get upset. Like, he realizes, oh, I made a mistake. And then she goes on to tell him, no, she was just fucking with him. She wanted him to feel bad. He deserved to feel bad. And you're like, yeah. Good. Like it's like it doesn't let a shitty joke linger. There's a little bit of like slap on the hand. 
And I think there is something interesting about what this movie is saying. I think it's something that that Martin McDonough wrestles with in a lot of his films, which is, you know, our words and our actions often don't paint a full picture of who we are as a person, right? We can be a little bit more like the colors of a rainbow. We could have a very strong red, but we also have a yellow and a blue in there as well. And I think over the last handful of years, we've gotten very much into a mindset where if you believe one thing, you are written off. If you support one thing, you're not worthy of supporting and vice versa too. If you do support something, then we are all in. I'm guilty of that. I try not to be, but I do think that this movie putting Colin Farrell at the center as someone who says a lot of problematic things is really interesting because he's also the emotional heart of the film. And we'll get into the whole story of this, but what we what we are trying to do or what we want to do in this movie, I think as an audience, is have him live. We want him to continue to grow. And I think that there's something really interesting about that. Like, there might be things in our lives that happen to us that change our point of view. And in that change, we become better and more interesting people. Um, and if we just judge someone for who they are and make it very black and white, are we cutting ourselves off from growth or being exposed to something and and vice versa? Are we not bringing people into the fold that could maybe enrich our lives in different ways? Does that make sense? No, it it makes a lot of sense. And it's like such a thorny question that I feel like McDonough is wrestling with in this movie you know, 900 different ways. Like in some ways he's saying it outright. Like he's having Ken, you know, the Brendan Gleeson character, a guy who is also a hitman, you know, a guy who's also killed tons of people, you know, try to argue the case to Harry who wants, you know, Ray dead, that he has the capacity to change. Just putting it right out there. Like, I believe that this young man deserves a chance to be a different, better man. Not only have you refused to kill the boy, you've even stopped the boy from killing himself, which would have solved my problem, which would have solved your problem, which sounds like it would have solved the boy's problem. It wouldn't have solved his problem. Ken, if I had killed a little kid, accidentally or otherwise, I wouldn't have fought twice. I'd have killed myself on the fucking spot. On the fucking spot. I'd have stuck the gun in my mouth on the fucking spot. That's you, Harry. The boy has the capacity to change. The boy has the capacity to do something decent with his life. Excuse me, Ken. I have the capacity to change. Yeah, you do. You have the capacity to get fucking worse. But then the other hand, this movie is also playing with that idea in kind of like underhanded, subtler ways. It's sort of implicating everybody in having negative thoughts. You know, it's 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 got this runner that, you know, the very town they're in, Bruges, all of the British people, all of the Irish people, you know, just think it's a shit place. You know, they, they don't even, they're not even aware of what it is. And it's so close by to England, but everybody's a snob. Everybody's very parochial. They look down on Bruges, even though they might think it's pretty. You know, like even from Harry's wife, you know, it's like, Bruges, where is that? I don't even know where that is. Like nobody cares. And there's this like innate snobbery that everybody has. And then even Ray himself, like Colin Farrell, one of the things that he really centers his personality on is how much he hates Americans you know, and he takes this moral stance when he's fighting with an American that, like, all Americans are shitty because of Vietnam. This is the smoking section. I don't care if it's the smoking section, right? She, she directed it right in my face, man. I don't want to die just because of your 
fucking arrogance. Uh-huh. Isn't that what the Vietnamese used to say? Vietnamese? What are you talking about the Vietnamese? That statement makes no fucking sense at all. Yes, it does. The Vietnamese. Saying it over and over ain't gonna make any more sense out of it. How, how, how does the Vietnamese have any relevance whatsoever to myself and my girlfriend ha having to breathe your friend's cigarette smoke? Tell me how saying. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. I mean, the use of Vietnam, just like I must win this argument because your country did Vietnam, is kind of almost the most simplistic thing we're talking about. You did a bad thing and therefore I will hate you forever, even though it wasn't you. You know, this kind of black and white moralistic thinking. And then, of course, the joke is they're Canadian. But like, <laughs> yeah, he's making assumptions. He's making declarative statements. It's like whenever anybody in this movie makes a declarative statement about what is good or what is wrong or what they're better than, the movie screws with you. And I think it also harkens back to what we talked about last week with John Wick. These hitmen have a code. And in all these movies that you have seen, Hitmen have a reason, right? They're only acting this way because they're paid to or they have a code that they live by. And this movie is kind of showing that codes are bullshit, right? Codes are not something that you must follow in a way without any examination. But codes are something that we align ourselves with for order because then there won't be chaos. And I think that that's what we talked about in John Wick. There's a certain order in the John Wick world, so there's not chaos with all these people with guns. And in this world, the Harry character played by Ray Fiennes, who is off the charts, crazy great. So cold and reptilian, that shaved head. Oh, I love it so much. I, I think this performance and Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast put them together. I want a movie there. I want a buddy villain movie. Uh, but I do think that this movie challenges dogma. You know, why are we doing what we do? And I think sometimes it's easier to do what we've made a rule about instead of looking at the nuances. And that really, to me, gets down to what this entire movie is about. Nuances. I was thinking about this movie in a grander way, or maybe in a smaller way. You tell me. I was looking at this as a father and son going on a vacation together. You know, here's a father who is, you know, probably a little disconnected from his son, set in his ways, and a son who is, you know, bored by this family vacation. And where do they find a middle ground? Can you find a middle ground? Like, I think that sometimes we don't see the people in our lives that are so close to us. We just make a, you know, we make a judgment about them. It could be personal. And, and I do think that that's what we kind of see here with Ken and Ray, this idea of, a father and a son finding that they both are worthy, that they both love each other, that they both protect each other, even though they don't necessarily see it or say it all the time. And I just was looking at that in a very, in a very small way, what this movie is about. It's about like finding that middle ground. Well, it's funny because like Martin McDonough once said that this movie came from him, more the idea of like dueling parts of his own personality. Oh, interesting. And that makes me feel like we are odd couples within our own brain. You know, don't you ever kind of feel like that? You're like, I feel like yeah. I'm always talking myself in circles. Yes, absolutely. That our own brains are full of nuance. That our own brains are not like, here's the good thing and I will do the good thing. A lot of times, like, like you know that I'm, I'm starting meditation. And I'm like yeah. aware of my body being like, what if I came up with an excuse why I don't have to do it? And you're like, what? What? But I want to. And like the I've, I'm fascinated by my interior battle, you know, I, I think you're right. 
uh, that idea of getting out of your head. I did this really amazing exercise. I would call it like this three hour long meditation body work session. And there were moments where I was looking at myself going, what are you doing? This is silly. You look silly. You are silly. And I felt like that was on the surface and I had to push down below it to actually embrace it. And letting go in that moment was really interesting. And what I found because I did do that was I kind of just held back my critical eye a little bit and allowed myself to sink into a a more open idea. And, you know, I think that, you know, you are a critic, I do comedy, and I think that it's very hard to separate that eye of constantly, yes, I'm experiencing this, but let me take a look at it from a step back. This is lame. Yes, I'm experiencing this. Okay, but that was, you know, that was stupid. Or, you know, you can you can look at the, I think we maybe all do that. I, I shouldn't just say it's right. open to just the two of us. I think we all have that. But no, that chap was that. like, this movie's making me cry. The notebook is making me cry. How dare it? It must be late, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. dueling war. You're like, you're working, but I resent you. And the part of me is pulling myself out of the brain to say no. And I want to look back at some of his earlier works too. Like Lieutenant of Inishmore is this play that I saw. Chris Pine was in it here in Los Angeles. He was fantastic in it. But it, it is a man who loves a cat. And he kills a lot of people because of a cat. We see John Wick last week, the man whose dog, which represents more, goes out and we, we buy into this idea, well, you killed his dog, so he's worthy of doing this. And here, I think we really up the ante because we show quite possibly the worst thing that you could possibly do. You know, Colin Farrell accidentally murders a kid. And... I'll say that and the cutest I, little boy and he hits uh, him in the head and the kid is there to confess to a priest and he wants to confess because he's bad at maths and it is I so know. silent and so sad. And I, and I think that what I find interesting about that is it's not just a stray shot. Colin Farrell f- seems to be overshooting this priest, right? He seems to be continually shooting at him. Like he got the two bullets and he was fine. He could have walked away, but he kept on shooting. And in that extra shooting, he killed the kid. So there is even a little bit more guilt there. It's not, it's not a stray bullet. And not that stray bullets mean that you're not guilty. I'm just saying that I think you can see more guilt there, but that's really who our enemy and hero is. Right. He's not the person who had his puppy killed. He's the person who killed the puppy. And so for all intents and purposes, we should be on the side of Harry, the Ray Fiennes character. Like, we must kill this guy. He killed a kid. He must be killed. Now, I had this thought, too. I want to talk to you about this. Like, I think that priest is probably a molester of children based on what we understand of Harry. Right. Because Harry seems to have children and he has Colin Farrell out to kill this priest. The priest doesn't seem like a gangster. The priest doesn't seem like a, a bad guy. It seems to me that the same sort of uh, rule is put in place. He found out that this priest may have touched a kid. This seems to me about the right time to be talking about that sort of stuff. And that's why he's even there in the first place. I mean, did you get that at all or no? Oh, you know, I hadn't considered that, but it it does feel like that chocolate joke might be a reminder to think in that direction and there is that moment that kind of sticks out to me when like harry is on the phone with brendan 
explaining why he's why they have to kill Colin Farrell's character. And he's talking about how he loves Bruges. And in this description, he mentions sort of offhand, like, the last good vacation I had was when I was seven. What? You know, I'm not sure if it's really his thing. What do you mean it's not really his thing? What's that supposed to mean? It's not really his thing. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Nothing, honey. It's a fairy tale fucking town, isn't it? How can a fairy tale town not be somebody's fucking thing? How can all those canals and bridges and cobble streets and those churches and all that beautiful fucking fairy tale stuff, how can that not be somebody's fucking thing, eh? What I think I meant to say was... Is the swan what? still there? Yeah, the how swans. How can fucking swans not fucking be somebody's fucking thing, eh? How can that be? And that's weird because you never really know what happened to him when he was seven. But that could tie in. It could be the most subtle tie-in of, like, something injured him in his life. There is a mystery there. Because, like, it's weird of Harry, right? Like, I'm going to kill this guy. Before I have this guy killed, I want to send him to the most beautiful place that I remember. And it's very personal to me. And my whole foundational memory of childhood peace is being in this town. It's almost generous in a way to be like, I want him to go to this place where I last found peace. But then it opens up that question. What threw off his peace? What made Harry Harry? Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, I also think, I mean, don't you think... Bruges is purgatory. It's waiting for which way that you're going. It's kind of this beautiful place that has a historic kind of their demons on the, you know, we're literally looking at demons and gods in the city. You know, which yeah, way will you get out? Like, you know, paintings. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think that there is something about like Bruges being a place where you await for your final judgment. You know, this is, you know, are you someone that should be killed or are you someone that should live and, and, but it's There's weird something... because then the people who like Bruges are the people who die, for sure. And then the people who mm. don't like Bruges, we don't know what happens. Do you think Colin Farrell dies at the end of the movie? I don't think he dies at the end of the movie. I think the movie is about him getting a second chance, is is about him wanting to live. You know, the movie also is about suicide, right, and guilt. And I think that, you know, in grieving, guilt is something that you will never escape. What if I didn't? What if I didn't? What if I didn't? You know, and you creating this moment of of life again, and 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 trying to figure out how you could get it back. You'll never be able to get it back. And I think that the only way he knows to get out is to kill himself. And what I think we're seeing here is he gets saved. He gets saved by by his friends and and by this place, right? Um, the reason why he's saved that tower is a part of his salvation the tower that he hates this place that he hates like because if it wasn't for brendan gleason dropping coins getting his attention then jumping off the top like he would have been killed right and he gets a second chance this place does give him a second chance 
Um, and he finds it and he finds a new life in, he finds a new life and a reason for living. And not to say that, that he's going to have a great life and he's going to forget about this, but it helps him move on. And maybe the idea that if we are guilty of something that we are broken doesn't mean that we need to be tossed in the trash. And I think there's something interesting about Brendan Gleeson's character and why he doesn't want to do it because here's Colin Farrell who's crying, feeling it. And I don't think Brendan Gleeson feels that anymore. And I think he's like, it is my time to die. I don't have humanity left. This kid has humanity left. Like he's worth saving. And the same thing for Harry. He doesn't have humanity left. He just is living by a code. The code is his version of humanity, but it has nothing to do with humanity. It says he's not making any decisions morally. And I think that that's really interesting too. It's like, I think the people who die are the people who are empty. And Ken, who is also a heart, you know, as well, but he's also, he knows, he can see it in himself. Like, I'm, I'm done. I don't deserve to live anymore. I mean, I think there's a world where Ken would have loved to keep living. Because mm-hmm. I think there's something beautiful in how Ken appreciates Bruges. You know how happy he is to be around the canals and looking in and appreciating the view of the buildings. And that there's something in the idea of if you are a soul who can go to Bruges and feel the beauty of it, then you're living a nice life. And it's strange with Ken because Brendan Gleeson doesn't play him like a hard-nosed assassin, right? We know he's been doing this for a while. You can gather he's been doing this for a while. But he isn't, like, mean. There's something so open in the way that his face is, just sort of open, solid. You know, he's not moving around all the time the way Colin Farrell's face is. He's not so, like, reactive. But he seems like he's taking in this beauty. He feels to me like a man who's lived a full life and is content but not numb, you know? But doesn't that feel like that idea of, going towards the light, like him going towards the light is enjoying Bruges. Like that, he's like, I am ready to be in Bruges. And Colin Farrell's like, I'm not ready to be in Bruges. I want to live. I want to be in an exciting city. I want to get out. And he gets a chance to to see this other side. And And his want is to pull out, but he actually pulls out and comes out more enlightened. I, I, I kind of see it as somebody walking towards the light or pulling away from the light. So that that to me is why... I think he's not only ready to die, but he actually brings it upon himself. He tells Harry, come find me. I'm here. And yeah. I'm not going to put up a fight. And he doesn't put up a fight. I mean, no. instead of putting up a fight, he just tells Harry that he loves him. You know, he's like, Harry, thank you. And we yeah. get kind of why he feels that way. I mean, see that. like for a second, I was thinking like, isn't it interesting that the worst of the bad guys, Harry is the one who's sticking to the code. He's the one who's always like, it's a matter of honor. You know, you've Mm got to stick to your principles. And he sticks to his principles to the point of destroying his own life. But then I thought, what right do I even have to say that Harry is the worst one? What right do I have to say that any of them is the worst one? I was going to say, why is Harry the worst one? I mean, because if you told me that he hired two assassins to kill a priest who molested a child and then killed a person who killed a child, I'd be like, wow. Yeah. Fucking cool. That's a hero in another movie, right? Yeah. But yeah, it, it's that. And it's also like Harry has a temper <laughs> when Ken calls him and is like, I'm not going to kill him. I'm sorry. There's that really funny moment where like he hangs up on Harry and Ray Fiennes plays it where he's standing there holding the phone for a really long time. 
a really long time. It's like 20 or 30 seconds. He's holding this phone thinking, I'm mad. What do I do? What do I do? And he finally just starts smashing the phone. And there's that suspense where you're like, has he just been thinking I shouldn't smash the phone? Is he trying not to, you know, tell the terrible chocolate joke? Is he just thinking I have to express myself in some way? But he smashes the phone and he has like this whole moment with his wife. It's an inanimate fucking object. You're an inanimate fucking object! And I feel like a lesser movie would kind of end it there. Like, oh, he said something mean to his wife, but um, wasn't that really funny? He's a bad guy. Yeah, you know, what are you going to do? He's a hitman. But like a minute later, he apologizes. I'm sorry for calling you an inanimate object. I was upset. And isn't that lovely? That this movie took time for him to be like, I'm sorry I called you an inanimate object, which is also just such a ridiculous, like, insult in the first place. But, like, you're right. He's not all bad. He's not all bad. And, And again, we're kind of seeing words have weight. You know, you say something stupid, you hurt somebody's feelings, words have weight. So as much as this movie is spraying insults around like bullets, it is acknowledging the damage that they do. But not in a way where it's like, yeah, blah, 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 be your good person. It's just there, folded into Harry. And also one of the things we know about Harry is we know why Brendan Gleeson's character is so much in his debt. You know, that he had a wife. He was married. His wife was black. Uh, His wife was murdered by a white man. And it was Harry who took revenge and killed his wife's killer. You know, that's almost like the simplest hitman revenge plot where you'd always be on that hitman side. They killed his wife. And it's like they killed his buddy's wife and he's still going to get his vengeance. That's the kind of like moral clarity that we're always told in movies is clear. Of course, absolutely. Go kill that guy. You have to be on his side. But this is Harry who did that. This is Harry who did that. And I feel like it actively challenges our our want to empathize. It our, It actively challenges the codes we've set up as correct. And I think it implicates us in all of these things. It implicates well, us for being like, yeah, of course, go get him. Like what? Well, I mean, I think it all comes down to this one discussion that is at the center of the movie, which is the bottle scene or the bottle conundrum. If someone comes at you with a bottle, can you hit them? Man, woman, or child, a bottle can kill you. So you are allowed to hit them, right? That is the code. And there's something about that. Like, I found myself being okay with Colin Farrell hitting that woman in the restaurant because he laid it out to me in a way like, that could kill me. So I need to defend myself. Like, I have to do this. Like, and it's interesting because you see him also wrestle with that a second later. He's like, I would never hit a woman. I'm never, I'm never going to hit a woman. I only did it because she came at me with a bottle. We're talking about a lot of theories, right? And if you believe it strongly enough, you don't ever really have to really think about anything. You don't have to make decisions. And life is hard. And living is hard. And dealing with your family and dealing with the world and making decisions about what you eat, where you shop, who you work for, all these things are hard, right? And and I think we're trying to make it easier. And I think that this movie does wrestle with this. And and at the end, the, the true answer is, yes, like Colin Farrell killed a child. He is guilt-ridden about it. 
he is hurt by it. But at the end, he realizes that he's got something to live for, a reason to be. And because of that, he goes on living. And he's not a perfect person. We know he's not a perfect person. I wouldn't even say he's a good person. But maybe he's a person that will add something to the world, a person that will grow. And I don't know, there's something about that idea like where it comes down to is like our hero is not only flawed, but really on the side of being the son of a bitch. Awful. Yeah. I mean, let's play one of the worst things he says as a reminder of how awful this character could be. Well, we shall strike a balance between culture and fun. Somehow I believe, Ken, that the balance shall tip in the favor of culture. Like a big, fat, fucking, retarded, fucking black girl on a seesaw. Opposite. A dwarf. I mean, that is awful. And the way that it's written, there's like the littlest bit of a joke where he's like, slur, 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 slur. Oh, but I've just learned that dwarf is the proper term. And I'm going to improve myself just a little bit on that one. But it's like, that's how hard it is to think that this guy has redeeming qualities, right? And then then in this moral code of the world too, like he falls in love with Chloe. Chloe's actually the one who tells him that that's not the word he should be using in the first place. I hope your major doesn't kill himself. Your dream sequence will be fucked. He doesn't like being called a midget. He prefers dwarf. This is exactly my point. People go around calling you a midget when you want to be called a dwarf. Of course you're going to blow your head off. And then, like, Chloe, on the facts of it, Chloe's like, yeah, I'm a heroin dealer. Yeah, I sell ketamine to to the actor. Yeah, I take tourists back to my apartment, make out with them, and then my boyfriend comes and threatens them with a gun, and then we steal all their stuff. That's what I do. And at the end of that scene, their, their, like, interaction on their date, when it goes horribly awry, and he shoots, like, her boyfriend in the face of the blank, he's like, you know, I just never thought I'd meet somebody like you. Nice. And when he calls her nice, like, the look in her eyes is so sweet. It's like there's a nice person in everybody just wanting to be like, oh, could I be nice? Well, and I guess my question to you is, could this part be played by anyone else other than Colin Farrell, who I think at this point, you know, like McConaughey, Farrell has had a uh, a renaissance. You know, I don't think people thought of him as a good actor before this film. And he's somebody that I think had a similar MO. Kind of a dick, but kind of interesting. Is he just like this guy who is just tearing through Hollywood, you know, sexually? Like, he is perfect casting because as an audience in 2008, I think we feel like we don't like Colin Farrell. I think that the the Colin Farrell that we know now is a lot more uh, centered and we love him. And we, you know, I think that that's why his character in Banshees is a little bit different. And Brendan Gleeson is a little bit more of the harder edge person. Like, I think there is a very big difference between these two um, performances. And I, I, I do think that that casting is, is kind of brilliant. And the reason why I think people really responded to it was because we've already made a decision about him and we didn't even look at his acting. Is it that he was in bad parts or was not given the right parts? He was actually given a part. Like, oh shit, he's really good. 
Like, you know, you could see this part not going over well. You could see this part being played by somebody who isn't likable. Yeah, Colin Farrell. At this point, when I saw this movie, I wasn't going in thinking like a Colin Farrell movie, but it's going to have really good acting. I was thinking, Colin Farrell, God, he was so flat in Miami Vice. They keep putting, making, trying to make this guy a star, and it's just not working. Daredevil, Alexander, New World, like yeah, Phone Booth, The Recruit. I kind of liked him in Phone Booth. That was like it. Yeah, he was getting dwarfed. Like, he was in a lot of roles where I felt like he was getting dwarfed by the material. Like, yeah, he's in Minority Report, but I never remember him in Minority Report. No, never I don't remember read, yeah. him in at all. And I felt like he was a guy who gave good talk show interview, but was really flat on screen. Well, because he was being cast like um, often what I think very attractive women get cast as, which is like, you are just there to be pretty. And what we see in these talk show interviews is, oh, you actually have a personality. And I think what this movie does, too, is it it shows him. It actually shows, oh, no, he's a three-dimensional person. Well, like, yeah. More, yeah. But also, like, that personality that he was being in talk shows was, like, I'm a friendly Irish drunk. And, like, right. I think it was kind of screwing with him off screen, too, because he was, like, a friendly Irish drunk off screen all the time. So it's, like, this is around when I he goes to rehab. And he, right. like, dries out a lot. Like, I mean, do you remember this is like only a year or two after he had a sex tape leak, which was like a really romantic sex tape. If you've ever seen it, have you seen it? I've not seen it. Um, it's I really just romantic. Know that- like I don't, I should not even say watching people's sex tapes is bad. I had to do it like 10 years ago for a podcast. Probably not a great idea. Really oh, fucked wow. up my brain. But I did watch this one. And the whole time he's just telling the girl how, how fucking beautiful she is. And it's kind of tender. You're like, it's not a gross one. It's not like, it's not like, Oh, who's that real meatball face who was like in a band for a long time? Fred Durst. Okay, sure. Yeah, it's not like that one. But um I didn't even know he had a sex tape. I guess I remember it now. I mean, to me, the the defining thing that I remember is him and Britney Spears. Right? Like this idea that they they slept together. Oh, I forgot about that. And that was in like 2003. And it just felt like it was this weird thing like didn't he send her a t-shirt that says like i slept with colin farrell and all i got was this lousy t-shirt or like it was like a very like that's kind of funny yeah i mean (laughs) you know i think it was this idea that he was this guy around town who probably would have been gone with a couple more swats you know like of movies of that caliber we wouldn't be talking about him anymore no i don't think we would like this is where i was like i will watch your things now he made a Woody Allen film in this year too, Cassandra's Dream. And I was like, they came out around the same time to me. And I watched Cassandra's Dream on purpose because I had liked In Bruges. And I was like, that one-two punch, I was like, you are good. In Bruges is much better. But like, he's also doing the, the vulnerable eyebrow thing. I kind of meant to look up like, what is the name of the muscle that controls your eyebrows? Because I can't do any of the things he can do. And I don't know how you do that and what muscle that is. I suppose he could never get Botox. Like if he ever got Botox and he couldn't move his eyebrows anymore... I noticed that close-up of him, you know, in bed when he's crying, you're really just looking right in his eyebrows and right at his eyes. And and you realize how much his eyebrows are part, I mean, it sounds so silly to say, of his face. Like, you know, like his eyebrows are a defining part of his face, a frame his face. You can't, I don't think you could say that about Harrison Ford. I don't think about Harrison Ford's eyebrows, right? So this is a true statement you can make about the way his, the color of his skin, the way the eyebrows are, it really does it gives you something that's a little arch. I think it's why, I, you know, I liked him as Bullseye or I thought he was an interesting choice as Bullseye. I don't know if that part was perfect for him. 
But it's why I don't love him as the penguin. I think he's great. I, but I'm, oh, I liked him as the penguin. I think he's very good as the penguin, but it feels like a waste of him to make him be the penguin. To be all no matter, behind that latex. To be all behind that latex. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. You talked a little bit about this moment where he looks at the the drug dealer and and she feels love from him is this a love story and I, i'm not just saying just that there's i think multiple we've talked about a handful of things like there's a love story between you know brendan gleason and colin farrell there's a love story between this drug dealer and colin farrell there's a love story i think between harry and brendan gleason this this idea of like there's a lot of word love is said a lot and 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 um and often either preceded or post something incredibly violent, right? Like, I think that this movie is a movie where you're putting a lot of juxtaposition together. You're putting extremely violent situation. Like, the way that people get killed in this movie um, is intense. You know, it's, it's gnarly. really- It's bloody. It's gnarly, yeah. But gnarly in a way without being exploitative. Like, I think that there's, you know, bloodier films, but this is like, oh fuck! Like it, it, it's hard, it's hard to watch. Like there's a there's a cut of Brendan Gleeson uh, on the ground after he jumps off the yeah. tower, and you see his one hand, in, you know, in opposite direction, and you see like almost like it almost looks like uh, like a piece of his head is like clipped out. It it really is. Yeah, it's, it's the, grotesque. The sound design of the landing. And by the way, I want to kind of set up the whole moment of his plummet really briefly, which is like. He climbs up to the tower. He's trying to warn him before Rafe Fiennes gets all the way down to, to where Colin Farrell is sitting. You talked about him throwing the coins. That's just one of those moments of the screenplay being so marvelous. It's like he has all those coins because like the jerk at the beginning wouldn't let him use mm. all of his coins to get into the tower in the first place. Somebody so who lives by their code. Towers. Yeah, his code is like, you. no, I, I need your 10 cents. So he had to break a 50-pound note to like buy the five-pound entrance fee. All very, very funny. But like to me, lovely scripting. It's not even, he doesn't even go, oh, thank God that guy didn't break my face. Like, he just has right. the coins and you can put it together. Or not. This movie is so like like clockwork. Every moment is beautifully set up and beautifully paid off. Like there's nothing, this movie is an hour and 47 minutes. And what it gets across, like every moment is there for something, for some reason. And it's lean. And I think I miss a lean movie that can make me feel like that. It's like, it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like uh, circumstantial. It doesn't feel like, oh, we just needed this moment. Everything feels earned. And uh, that moment, I just want to like, yeah, that that moment there is, there's a musicality to that. Like, oh my gosh, like you, 
almost are laughing that he has those coins in his pocket because you remember it without it being called out. Like you said, it's like it doesn't need it because we're there. We're in that moment. We just saw it. Yeah. No, you're right. It's so lean. And at the same time, it has space for those moments of him like being up there. The dropping of the coin, like the whole preparation of, of Ken to jump off the balcony takes forever. It's like two minutes. He's up there. He's hand- puffing. You see the blood smeared on the floor. He's pulling himself up to the railing. He's quiet. He's breathing. He's looking out at Bruges. And you notice that like the sky is full of kind of that like frozen fog in the air that he had described over the phone to Harry when he was making up a whole story about how much how much Colin Farrell liked this place. He's like, oh, he said it was like a dream, the frozen fog in the air. And there's the fog and it's just there. And he doesn't have to say, it is like a dream. It's just there. And then he finally, after this beautiful moment of like soaking in life for the last time, plummets and this is the sound he makes when he lands. I mean, talk about a juxtaposition. Talk about raw pain. I mean, this is a movie where the hitmen cause death. Hitmen die. And that death is always real and it is always awful. It is awful. And that, I feel like it's shortchanged. I like my deaths being awful. Doesn't have to be all the time. Sure, John Wick can kill 80 people. But like when it is awful like this, it has this power. Exactly. And the idea that these are hitmen, right? These are, every life is important, right? Just because you're bad. And I think this is, again, we're talking about this idea. What makes you bad? Because we see something in this movie that I love, and I don't think we've talked about this yet, where Colin Farrell sees the Canadians that he thinks are Americans. You and he basically the Canadians. He, he tells him, like, <laughs> you better not go up there. You're too fucking fat, right? Like in some version of that, right? It's a very... Uh, intense way and, and calling them elephants, right? And then we see Brendan Gleeson, who's a little bit larger, saying to them, hey, be careful up there. And they're like, fuck you. You know you're just the rudest man. The rudest man. What's all that about? They're not going up there. Hey, guys, I wouldn't go up there. It's really narrow. Screw you, motherfucker! Americans, isn't it? They're both saying the same thing. And (laughs) it's interesting. I don't know, that moment to me, I want to just unpack that moment because one is out of the kindness of spirit being like, I just went up there. You might have a hard time. And then we actually find out that is true because they went up there. It did cause an issue, right? And I don't think that this is a fat joke. I don't think this is a joke about, oh my gosh, it's so funny that they would even attempt that. But it is interesting how even those people that are innocent can also be stubborn in their ways too, not wanting to listen, not wanting to go forward. Like everyone's closed off to something until maybe they learn the lesson that changed them. I just keep on coming back to that. And I love that idea because it's actually a very optimistic way of looking at life. And also, I think the punchline of it is like, Americans are hated Americans. You know, Americans know they're hated. Like Jordan Prentice's character, the the dwarf actor who is American is always like, don't hold it against me that I'm American. Don't hold it against me that it's American. But as you hear in that clip, like the, sis, the, the protective daughter is like, screw you. Brendan doesn't know what's happening. Why is she so angry? Colin Farrell's allowed to be like, Americans, as in Americans are just rude. And there's, but we see the buildup of why she's so rude. But then it turns right. into like this kind of like 
contribution to the idea that Americans suck, right? Like, why do we think Americans are so rude all the time? Well, in this case, it's because this guy was kind of pushing her, like insulting her dad. You know, and you get even the fullness of why everybody hates Americans in this movie. Although they probably also hate them because of the Iraq war and because American tourists can be really annoying. And I am one of them. So I can say that I can be very annoying. And, you know, Americans are always insisting everybody speaks English. But then again, so is Colin. And yeah, it, it's just it's just rich. We're all judging each other based on these impressions. And here we see how an impression is even get made. Right. And, you know, the whole reason why Colin Farrell can't get away from Bruges is because of his interaction with that Canadian, uh, Jelko Ivanek, who... I love and has been in so many amazing things, you know, just from damages and to, uh, you know, every, like he's in his, he's one of the best Argo Hannibal. He's in three billboards. He's in seven psychopaths. He's in everything. Um, uh, Banshee as well. The, uh, but I, I, there is something really interesting too. It's like, um, like he, you know, he was, a dick. All right. Was he a dick? Or I don't know. They're in the smoking section. Yeah, that's his whole thing is like, your girlfriend is smoking at me, but it is the smoking section. So whose fault is it really? You know, the, there's whole arguments in this movie over and over again. People like kind of claiming victim status and people being like, what? Yeah, that that's what I think as we kind of wrestle with it more. I, I thought of this movie on first watch as a movie about grief, but I, I actually now th- see it a lot more as a movie about our inflexibility with being challenged by anybody or anything that is different. You're sitting in the smoking section and you're mad that someone's smoking, so they are wrong, even though they are doing the thing that they should be doing in that section, but you don't like it. Or, or think about the one, think about the one where like Chloe's boyfriend who gets shot in the face is like super, super, super mad at Colin for shooting him in the face. And Harry's like, what are you talking about? I was trying to rob him. And he took my gun from me. And the gun was full of blanks. And he shot the blank into my eye. And now, I cannot see from this eye ever again, the doctor say. Well, to be honest, it sounds like it was all your fault. What? I mean, basically, if you're robbing a man and you're only carrying blanks and you allow your gun to be taken off you and you allow yourself to be shot in the eye with a blank, which I assume the person has to get quite close to you, then, yeah, really, it's all your fault for being such a puff. So why don't you stop whinging and cheer the fuck up? I mean, that's exactly it, too. Like, I'm the victim here. I got shot in the face. You were robbing the guy and you were doing a really bad job at it. Right. And... And, you know, as we have this conversation, I think this is why I didn't like billboards, because I think billboards had a much more simple view. It was like Americans are stupid and or and not that I took offense at that. I just felt like it was a very uh, Twitter take on like what middle America is. You know, it just it just felt bland. It didn't feel rich, whereas something like uh, Banshees, I really loved because it is complex. Is Brendan Gleeson wrong? Is he right? I went back and forth. You know, is Colin Farrell a bad guy? Like, what is, I think that this moral ambiguity about questioning who we are as people is way more interesting. And I think this is where Martin McDonough thrives. And I think by pairing it with violence, you can have a movie where it's like, oh, it's about hitmen that are hiding out in the city. But it's so much more than that. It's about using violence as a backdrop, I think, to amp up the situations where we are probably the most black and white 
when we should probably be a lot more gray. Right. It's like the stakes. It's like black and white life or death stakes. And that is where you should take a second and think about it and be more gray. And so that's what I really love. And, you know, when I look in his filmography and, you know, obviously Banshees was nominated for a lot of awards. So it was three billboards. I think this is going to stand the test of time over all of those films. I think that this is very similar to the plays that I've read and seen of Martin McDonough. I also feel like this is a play that's coming out of a place of foresight, right? He's seeing ahead because it's only gotten worse this idea since 2008. We've only gotten, you know, in the last, you know, 13 years or so, we've gotten more and more into this place of being firmly entrenched in our beliefs and having our reasons for wavering <laughs> in those beliefs. But there, yeah. you know, it's it's harder and harder to describe. We and, are, Harry. We have the capacity to change. You have the capacity to get fucking worse. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess maybe the question is, you know, what should we be trying to do as a culture like what should we be trying to do as human beings like what is this movie teaching us yeah i think what it's asking us is about our ability to forgive to allow people to repent which i think we don't have Mm -hmm. i think this movie is so much about that like the the only path forward is figuring out if there is a path for how to get how can you allow somebody a path forward I mean, and and maybe there's a part of this where it's also like, we are all a work in progress. And if mm-hmm. you stop the work in progress, you'll never see what comes out of it. This is, you know, the joke that I think a lot of people have tackled, but it's like, what if someone told Hitler his paintings were good? Mm-hmm. You know, what if someone just embraced that part of him? You know, would it have changed things? Probably not. But, uh, but the idea like, we are constantly evolving by the stimulus and people and world that we live in. And I think that we are also in a society that doesn't have patience to look at that. And this movie presents us very bad men who are doing questionable things, right? If Harry's whole goal is to basically be this, you know, death wish style a mob man who kills, you know, people who hurt children or innocent victims. Well, that's interesting. We only see him as this other version of it, like a man so driven by his code, you know, and and we see... A man trying to instill that code in his son, the way he says it to him. Yeah. He says, matter of honor to his son, like, please remember this. I want you to live the way I do. And we see Colin Farrell who made a mistake, didn't mean to do this. And do you have to be defined by one mistake? And granted, that mistake is a giant mistake, but... And he knows it's a giant mistake. Like, it wrestles with him all the time. Like, he's in deep pain about it, you know? And kind of the only thing that Brendan Gleeson can think of to tell him is, you know, like, you lost this one, you'll save the next one. You're not going to help anybody dead. You're not going to bring that boy back. (laughs) save the next one. What am I going to be, a doctor? You need exams. Which in a way, I think is like maybe what Brendan's character does too. Like he's fucked up. He's talked about, you know, killing that guy who was coming at him with a bottle. Maybe saving Colin's character is his, his, him taking that lesson to heart himself. And maybe part of this is how do we live a life where guilt doesn't overtake everything in our lives because we're always going to make the wrong choices 
or maybe a choice that we think we make that is right will have consequences that we don't realize. And guilt is so paralyzing. But making mistakes is part of being human. And you know, on that note, like, you know what scene really jumped out to me this time? Is like, there's kind of this two-four scene, right? Yeah. Where like, the dudes are partying and snorting a lot of coke with with um, Jordan Prentice's character, with the actor Jimmy. And Jimmy starts going on uh, in one of the little harder to watch scenes of the movie about like how he thinks there's going to be a race war, right? And it's crazy to listen to. You're like, what is this guy saying? It's sort of messing with you a little bit because you've been like thinking, I have to defend Jimmy all the time from Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell's being such a jerk to him. Everybody's being mean to him. Jimmy, we got to protect Jimmy. Oh God, Jimmy's kind of screwed up too. Oh no. And then there's this idea and it's kind of like a scene about taking an idea into the light. He brings up this idea in the room and the room just sort of like pulls at it, asks him questions, exposes what an idiotic idea this is to him, you know? And like through the washing of this idea in public, it becomes more ridiculous. It's not just like, I think a bad thing. Well, f- screw you. They're like, they engage him and show how it's stupid, right? Right. My wife was black. And I loved her very much. And in 1976, she was murdered by a white man. So, where the fuck am I supposed to stand in all this blood and carnage? Did they get the guy who did it? A friend of mine got him. Harry Waters got him. So tell me, Jim, whose side do I fight on in this wonderful war? I think you need to weigh up all your options and let your conscience decide, Ken. Two monkey hookers. And a racist dwarf. I think I'm heading home. Yeah? I'll come with you. And then, the scene that I think I always kind of overlooked is like, you know, the next night when when Chloe is out in the center of the square and she's like hanging out with um, with Ray and they're drinking and they kind of have that nice moment where they almost like invite Eric to sit down with them. Like they're sort of being welcoming in love. Like, hello, everybody. We're friendly now. And Jimmy comes by and Colin starts to make fun of him for his for his rant about the race war. And you sense this deep shame in Jimmy. He's like, I was fucked up. Now that I'm sober, I realize that was just stupid. I wasn't... I wasn't talking about... There's going to be a war between all the blacks and all the whites and all the black midgets and all the white midgets, which would actually be really good. That's just cocaine. He didn't even want the Vietnamese on his side. That's just cocaine. Even the cyclical nature of that, the ability to recognize that somebody is not always who they are at their worst, drunkest, highest, most idiotic moment. You know, there's a grace in that, like a forgiveness. And, you know, you're talking about the dwarf and thinking about the dwarf. I also am realizing, like, the the way that, that Colin Farrell views it, like, oh, he probably is depressed oh, he, like you don't think of this person as doing drugs or living a life or having sex with prostitutes. Like He's also a full character, but we look down 
or not look down. I think that people have a way of uh, stereotyping someone and that's a beautiful encapsulation of it. It's not just, I mean, we do get into the race of it all like you just discussed, but it's also like, oh, it's also the way that he perceives him. And it's, everyone's a human being. I I, I kind of, this conversation has really been great because I really love this um this way of looking at this movie and it it just goes to show how um, tightly written this script is how everything is amazing coming down to you know the hotel innkeeper who won't leave she's like fuck yeah. no this is my home get the fuck out of here you know take your shit outside like you know and she's pregnant and she like but she you know she's not just a damsel in distress. She's not just somebody who needs to be told what to do. She has her own fortitude and her own will. And it's like, we, you know, how often are we actually learning about people and not just making a snap judgment? Anyway, I, I, I really, really, really enjoy this movie. I do too. And I have to say there has been a deep well of cynicism in my body Mm. since this movie came out. That is, only starting to thaw after our last Oscar season, you know, because this is a movie that did what I was afraid of would happen everything everywhere else. It got nominated for Best Original Screenplay only. That's it at the Oscars. All it got nominated for. No acting, nothing else. And it lost. And it lost to Milk. And you're just like, whatever, sure. And even worse, just as bad. 2008, the year of this, mm. is also the year Sinitaki New York came out. My second favorite movie, tied for number one of all time, not even nominated. For an original screenplay Oscar. Not even nominated. This was the year that like Slumdog Millionaire wore everything. And I was just like, screw the Oscars. The Oscars are stupid. And so this deep resentment in me has not thawed. And I have to say, as much as I rag on the Golden Globes, deservedly, deservedly rag on the Golden Globes, they got this right. Because they nominated both Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson for Best Actor. And they gave it to Colin. Here's Colin Speech winning the Golden Globe Best Actor in a Comedy for this movie. And the Golden Globe goes to Colin Farrell in Bruges. Uh, that's a, thank you. Cheers. Thanks a million. Thanks. That's a, a really, they must have done the counting in Florida. Um, yeah, Martin, thank you for not listening to me when I asked you to cast somebody else. I've, I've never been so at peace with being ignored in my life. Um, it's seldom that you get a script that's as uh, simultaneously profound and beautifully comic and wonderfully painful, filled with delightful remorse and more than anything else, uh, the sweetest, sweetest redemptive qualities. And that was, that was in Bruges for me. And to work with Martin was a dream. Uh, and I love you. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll ride Tally's, uh, Sally's uh, coattails and start talking about love a bit because at the end of the day, I think what we all do in some way, shape or form and I hate to wax lyrical, is about love. Curiosity is love. It's uh, ignorance's uh, nemesis. And um, so thank you, Martin and Brendan. I love you dearly. And this is at least half of yours. I'll, I'll cut it when I get off stage and you can have a hemisphere. <laughs> so kudos to the Golden Globes. They actually got it right and the Oscars suck. Well, look, about the Oscars this year, everything, everywhere, all at once won for Best Picture. And it's also a movie that I think is a big genre premise that is saying something so much deeper about the human experience. This movie is a genre premise that is, but I think on the outskirts of it, you look at it and you say, oh, it's just a hitman movie 
there's not that much there because I think you can enjoy it like that. And we've talked about this in the past. Sometimes when it's hidden, it doesn't get the recognition for being as deep as it is because people aren't willing to go there. Even in this conversation with you, I appreciate this movie even more. I already liked it. Now I see a lot more levels to it. Um, Three Billboards, I think, is a lot more black and white. We get it. We see what it is. I, I see that. I think Banshees is even a lot more black and white, like on, on a certain level. Um, I think that to me, as much as I like Banshees as a reteaming, I can't get over the fact that like Brendan Gleeson loves creating music so right. much that he's going to cut off the fingers he needs to create music. And I know that he's going for the metaphor there, like the cutting off your nose to spite your face, but I don't buy it. I just really can't buy it. And it sucks because I want to buy it and I can't. And then I think the donkey takes over the movie for no point. Well, I also think with that movie, you know, you're dealing with something that I think is a little bit more of a, like a fable. It feels, you know, Mm -hmm. where this feels like it takes place in the real world. That movie just feels a little isolated in a beautiful way. I I really liked it. I thought it was very funny. Um, I like it too. But all of the nominations it got, they should belong to Inbridge. (laughs) Well, yes. And you can't go back retroactively. I get that. But you know, I'm so glad it exists. And I think that it is one of those films that will continue to have staying power because it is kind of timeless. The setting of Bruges keeps it that way. Like there's nothing about this movie that tells you it was made in 2008 versus 2023. Uh, you know, I, even the phones, they're not even using cell phones. You know, they're they're using literal, you know, ringing phones. You know, I think that there's something about this setting that makes it kind of perfect because it is this movie. And then I want to just bring it back to the end, you know, the end scene, essentially uh, Ray Fiennes is killed during the take of a movie. Like, you know, he's killed in a movie and it's like the movie ends or there's a, this, you know, this reality in the film. And maybe there's even something to unpack there. This idea of like, you know, the movie is about real life, but it's putting itself in a film. And then, the break when Colin Farrell's pulled out, you know, is he pulled out of the film? Is he pulled out of this reality? And now he's going back into the world again. I don't know. There's something really interesting about that. The final death being really on a set of a, where nothing is real. The snow is fake and you know, the costumes are not real and you don't, and you don't realize it right away. You just kind of, you, you see how, Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it's that meta. The little boy is not real. Yes. The little boy is not real. Yeah. Pretty in that, uh, yeah. Oh, it's so. Oh, it's a really Gosh, beautiful. I think about how slow that moment is when you realize what Ray Fine is going to do. I know. You know, when he like it takes forever. That's what I mean about this movie feeling like it's at such a clip, but giving the slowness to the scenes that need it. It it's. I'm gonna play a little bit of this, but it's like a full minute. I feel like into the scene where like Colin is crawling towards Jordan's body, which, you know, the head has been blown off. So you can't tell that he is not a child, that he's a door factor. And you start to just do the math inside your own gut. Like, Oh God, I know what Ray finds is going to say he has to do. And it's the exact same thing that Colin did shooting at one person, hitting another person through the body. And like, Watching that realization wash over us and then watching it, watching it wash over Rafe's face is so patient and just so, so terrible. Ah. I say.
It's even like the loveliness of Colin being like, don't do it. Trying to save the life of a guy who's shooting him. It's an interesting thing. There will always be people that live by their principles and there's something beautiful about that. And there's something beautiful about getting into the mix. I I don't know, because I also feel like that's a very heroic thing that he does, too. I mean, but it's in a moment where he's not a hypocrite. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a hypocrite, but he also isn't allowing himself to fully take in the situation. And that is really the underscoring of the entire thing. Like, what is actually going on versus what is perceived going on? Oh, you're right. How can you... You can claim you have principles, but you're never going to know the full story. So can you stick to principles when you don't know the full story? Because he's so quick to to guilt. Yeah. Yeah. It's... You're right, because I feel like all the time in the news, you see people sort of snap to judgment about like, this is what must be what happened. And that person's in the wrong when they don't know the full story, because it's almost impossible for everybody to know the full story. You can't. Full stories are so complicated. They are. You know, but you like assume that you know the story. He assumes he knows what happened. So he assumes he's got to stick to his principles and just the self-defeat of thinking, you know, what's going on when you don't. And then that's your downfall. Oh, wow. I love it. I love it. This film feels like it should have come out today. You know, it feels like it it feels so much about this moment. It feels more about this moment than it did when it came out. You're right. I don't think I saw all of this in it when I saw it for the first time. I thought it was a a terrific hitman movie with so much personality and heart and soul and wit and empathy. And it has grown deeper for me with every watch. I mean, and I imagine, like you said, it wasn't a film that got a lot of attention, but was it beloved when it came out, even though it didn't, you know, climb up the charts when it was first out, was it received well? Yes and no. Like, I remember very specifically that the trailer of this sold a different type of movie, that it sold the wacky Guy Ritchie kind of hitman comedy. You know, like, it's like, boom, shoot first, sightsee later, waka, waka, waka. Get to Bruges. 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 Where's that? It's in Belgium. For two weeks. In Bruges, in a room like this, with you? No way. I mean, shoot first and sightsee later is like the opposite of what happens. There's a lot of sightseeing and then some tragic shooting. But like that setup of people expecting they were sitting down to see like a wacky hitman movie threw off people who wanted to see a wacky hitman movie. And it made a lot of critics go in thinking they're seeing a wacky hitman movie and kind of shutting their eyes to it. So like Rex Reed, of course, was like, it's a gruesome, confused stumblebum of a movie, which is the most pretentious bucket of swill since I'm not there. This one might be worse. Instead of Kate Blanchett as a man, it's got a dwarf hooked on horse tranquilizers. The whole miserable mess is like a brain concussion, ending with the voice of Ray's corpse waxing poetic. Maybe that's what hell is. The rest of fucking eternity spent in fucking Bruges. No, 91 minutes is hell enough already. Wow. Yeah. And even Anthony Lane from The New Yorker, like, he had a lot of issues with, you know, the language in the film. You know, he's like, nobody wants a movie that tiptoes in step with political correctness, yet the willful opposite can be equally noxious. And as in Bruges barges and blusters its way through dwarf jokes, child abuse jokes, jokes about fat black women and moldy old jokes about Americans, it runs the risk of pleasing itself more than it's paying viewers. And it just, it like says that this movie is all outrage and not looking at kind of, I think, what this movie is saying with its outrage, which I find to be horribly calculated. And I think the fact that it's so shocking, you know, that particularly 
the joke about black women is so awful to hear. I mean, I guess that is a point. Like, can something be so awful and immoral that you're like, the movie just can't go there? This is, I don't know. This is the question I'll be like wrestling with the rest of my life. Well, I also think, you know, there's something really interesting. I just was realizing as you're talking about this, about Bruges in general. One person looks at Bruges as a beautiful place. Another person looks at it as a place that is the worst. You know, everyone, it's all the same. There's nothing that's changed. It's all the people's perception of the same building, the same town, the same people. And I, again, I just am looking at like that idea too, because it's sort of like Bruges is doing nothing. Bruges is just a place. And in the spirit of this movie, all I can say is, well, everyone can have their own opinion, but maybe hopefully they will uh, rewatch it at one point. Well, then let me ask you this. Do you want to go to Bruges? Oh my gosh, it looked great. Yeah, I kind of I mean, wanted it looked, to. Yeah, it looked amazing. So, I mean, it's interesting. We've been on this little hitman tear, but maybe we we kind of keep the same rhythm, but we change it up a little bit. Instead of maybe a hitman, maybe somebody being chased by a hitman. Um, but we kind of keep in this vein of first. We've we've seen the first film uh, directed by Martin McDonough. Oh, that's true. And with John Wick, we did the first film by Chad Selesky. So maybe it's uh, time to talk about something we haven't talked about, uh, I don't think ever on this podcast, and that's Robert Rodriguez Ooh. and go to El Mariachi. I love that idea. I Let's love that, totally do El Mariachi. I love that the show is now taking this kind of uh, structure where we really are, it's almost like improv or jazz, two things that people seemingly don't like at all, but uh, where we are just kind of finding our own rhythm and kind of digging into different parts. But this is actually great. The original El Mariachi. I'm surprised we've gotten this far without talking about Robert Rodriguez. And uh, I think this is a great way. I'm curious to see where this where this continues to take us. Uh, you can watch it on Prime Video. It's included with Prime, but take a listen to a trailer. In 1991, Columbia Pictures introduced you to an extraordinary new filmmaker and an unforgettable new vision. The director was 23-year-old John Singleton. The film, Boys in the Hood. Now, Columbia Pictures is proud to present a remarkable new film from another extraordinary new talent. The director is 23-year-old Robert Rodriguez. The film, El Mariachi. You can find El Mariachi wherever you find your streaming films. It's out there. It's there. It's easy to find. Um, but this will be a lot of fun. I, I actually want to go back and see, because I've watched a lot of his later stuff now, uh, Robert Rodriguez, and I really found it interesting like what he's up to lately. I, I, I'm really fascinated by his career and where he's stayed and what he does. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, I'm excited to get into this too. Ah! What a nice tear. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium. 
and for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Imagine bold, naturally-aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar. Extraordinary dairy.